Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14 for the fourth Sunday morning now. We are in the midst of studying these first 12 verses of Romans chapter 14. They're about the subject of issues of gray. And by issues of gray, I mean, and the text does, and the rest of the Bible that addresses it does, means subjects that the Word of God doesn't specifically command or forbid. Subjects on which there has always been disagreement among the people of God and always will be. Issues of gray. Let's read the passage once more. Follow along with me as I begin to read in verse 1. It says, except anyone who is weak in faith or weak in the faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not criticize one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to criticize another's household slave? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person considers one day to be above another day. Someone else considers every day to be the same. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it. Yet he thanks God. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and came to life for this, that he might rule over both the dead and the living. But you... Why do you criticize your brother? For you. Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. I've told you that in these opening 12 verses of the chapter, we are going to be looking at six facts about these issues of gray. And as surprising as it may be to you, we have only covered two of them in the first three weeks. We're going to make up for lost time today, I promise you that. The first two facts that we have seen are that issues of gray include a number of subjects. There are three subjects in this passage that are brought out. Uh, What was acceptable to eat, 
what behavior was acceptable on certain days, especially the Sabbath day. We haven't gotten to it yet, but in the latter part of chapter 14, the subject of of drinking, alcohol comes up there. We also looked at other subjects that are like these, two issues of gray. Then last week we talked more about the second fact, which is that issues of gray reveal those who are weak and strong in the faith. These issues of gray individually show us those who have more freedom in Christ and those who have less freedom in Christ. The important thing as the weak and the strong in the faith were being talked about here is that the stronger in the faith must not look down on the weaker in the faith and the weaker in the faith must not criticize or judge or condemn those who have more freedom in their faith. That brings us then to fact number three where we start today. And it is that issues of gray are not a cause for breaking fellowship. Issues of gray are not a cause for breaking fellowship. I take this from the first part of the passage, first part of verse 1. It says, except anyone who is weak in the faith. And though it doesn't say it literally, I think from the entire passage, you could turn it around and also say, except anyone who is stronger in the faith or has more freedom in their faith than you do. So from that, I am suggesting that it's teaching us that issues of gray are not a cause for breaking fellowship. That's the ideal. But it's not always the case, is it? Down through the years, issues of gray have been a leading cause of individual Christians breaking fellowship with each other. Down through the years, even to this day, issues of gray remain a leading cause for groups of Christians breaking fellowship with another group of Christians. Often I reference Charles Spurgeon, and if you haven't heard me say it before, I would suggest to you that he's the greatest English-speaking preacher that the world has ever known. I can't read enough from him or enough about him. He preached in England during the Victorian age of England and during that time among nonconformist pastors, that means churches that weren't a part of the Church of England, among those nonconformist pastors, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker were the two leading preachers in England in the city of London. And for a long time, They were very close personal friends, very close brothers in the ministry. They preached in each other's pulpits often. They socialized with one another. But there came a time in their relationship where they broke fellowship with one another. And it was because of Spurgeon, who found out that Joseph Parker went to the theater 
And publicly he said about him, because he went to the theater, that he was unspiritual. And that he would never preach in his pulpit again, nor would he preach in his. And their fellowship was broken because of this. And as much as I admire Spurgeon and am cautious about criticizing him, I would suggest that he broke their fellowship for the wrong reason. I would remind you, if you don't already know, Spurgeon was a guy who was criticized often for his worldliness in some people's eyes. He was a salty character if ever there has been one. Spurgeon smoked his cigars. He drank daily. I'm not saying he was a drunk, but he drank. And it shows us what I've said already in these preceding weeks, that where We may consider ourselves strong in the faith. Others are weak. Where we may consider ourselves weak or having less freedom in the faith, others may have more freedom. Do you remember one of the leading issues in the church at Rome that was uh, subject to dividing them? It was over the issue of eating meat. Whether you could eat it at all or not, whether you could eat all meat or not, whether you could only eat certain meats or eat meats that you had bought in certain places. Our Ken Hughes has commented that the easy solution for the church at Rome, now, now mind what I'm about to say, the easy solution would have been for them to split their church. Down those lines, and he suggested two names for the new churches. The church of the carnivores and the first church of the vegetarians. Now doing that would have been just as silly as it sounds. But churches down through the years have divided over issues Just as silly as this. That's what I mean when I say here that these issues of gray are not a cause for breaking fellowship. Leon Morris is a New Testament scholar that I've quoted to you from before. He has said about this that the church was never meant to be a cozy club of like-minded people of one race or one social position or one intellectual caliber. And I would add that the church was never intended to be a cozy club of like-minded people with the same interest. The beauty of the New Testament godly ideal of the church is that it is to be a witness to the world of the unifying power of salvation in Jesus. God has always designed from the beginning of the church for it to be a demonstration of unity among diversity. You remember within the early church, it wasn't just the issues we've been talking about that divided them, but there were deeper issues that divided them. Issues like 
Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. And an even bigger issue of Jews and Gentiles. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find a notion that the Jews were to congregate and have their own church while the Gentiles were to congregate over here and have their own church. Or that the Hebrew-speaking Jews were to get together and have their own church separated from the Greek-speaking Jews. And I ask you, in all honesty, is the church today, are most churches today any better at this than what they were then? Look around our congregation this morning. What do we see? A whole lot of folks that look just like I do. And I'm not picking at us. You could go to any church in our area this morning and you know what you would see? You'd see a whole lot of people that look just like each other. And for the most part, you'd see people that not only look like each other, but come from similar backgrounds, are of similar economic situations in life. Churches have even been started along those lines. And this is uncomfortable ground for us. But every church must ask themselves the question, is the makeup of our congregation of such a quality that by its very makeup, it is a testimony to the unbelieving, unchurched world of how God can bring different people together under the umbrella that Jesus is Lord and salvation can only be found in Him. Isn't it the least bit embarrassing to any Christian or any church today that our congregations aren't more racially diverse than what they are? We're in 2014. And again, I'm not just talking about our congregation. It's true of African-American congregations, and it's true of other primarily white congregations. And it's beyond the racial thing, too. It, it could be on these issues of gray. It could be on other factors. Listen again to the thought of Morris. I think he hits the nail right on the head. The church was never intended to be an organization or a group of people who were all pretty much just alike. That doesn't demonstrate at all the power of God to unify. We already get along with people that are like us. So we must ask ourselves the question, what can we do to make our church and what can other churches do to make their church as diverse as the world is. So then, the lost world in looking in will see, now there's a group of different people, but they get along with each other, 
and they love each other. And they've got poor folks there, and they have rich folks there, and they have folks from this side of the tracks there, and this side of the tracks there, and they have folks that look like this, and folks that look like that, and they have folks that think like this, and think like that, and yet it works. We each should pray for a church like that because from it I am convinced that God receives the most glory and our witness has maximum impact on the lost and the unchurched. I applaud every effort to start new churches I applaud every effort to reach unreached people groups. But I must admit that when I hear of churches that are started around one genre, if you will, if they haven't missed the boat on what the church is to be about from the beginning. And you know what I'm talking about? I'm not being critical. I'm just asking us to think about this. Did God ever intend for there to be just a cowboy church? Or did God ever intend for there to be just a people who like contemporary music church? Or did God ever intend for the church, a local church, to be just a church where everybody comes very casually? Or on the other hand, everybody comes dressed very formally? Did he? I find no evidence of that in the New Testament. None whatsoever. What I find is God intending for the church to be made up of all sorts of people. And though it would be easier to divide in those subgroups, look, it would. We laughed at Kent Hughes' suggestion that they should have divided into the meat-eaters and the non-meat-eating church. That would have been easier. But it's not always best to do what's easiest. It's about what honors God the most. How the power of God is is evidenced the most. The thing about issues of gray is that they're not more important than unity. But sometimes we've made them so. They're never more important than unity. If an issue of gray or how someone feels about an issue of gray would cause you individually to break fellowship with them, I would suggest that we immediately would need to evaluate our own life more than theirs. Or if an issue of gray causes us to break fellowship as a group with another group, that we should do the same. Once more, I'll throw out the phrase, the church is to be a picture of unity among diversity. Romans 12, do you remember the teaching on spiritual gifts? We're all different parts of the body, right? But we're one body. Our function is different. Our role is different. Our giftedness is different. But we're one body. Again, I quote from R. Ken Hughes, great preacher, going to be with the Lord. There is room in Christ's church for you whether you wear wingtips or sandals, whether you walk to church or ride in a Rolls Royce 
or a Harley Davidson. Whether you powder your nose or not, whether you dance or not, whether you drink or refrain, whether you watch TV or abstain, whether you use my translation of the Bible or not. And there's not just room for all of those people within the church as a whole. There should be room for all of those people among a local church. Because everything he's mentioned biblically is an issue of gray. So issues of gray are not a cause for breaking fellowship. have a surprise for you. I'm through with fact number three. Fact number four, issues of gray are not a cause for argument. Issues of gray are not a cause for argument. I take this from the second part of verse 1. Except anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. The word that's translated argue here isn't as simply understood as the way we understand the word argue in English. In their language, it was a word that meant judge. Issues of grave in are not a cause for judgment to be passed. We should not separate or isolate others or ourselves on the basis of these issues of gray. That's what the word meant. It means that we are not to declare guilty or condemn someone simply because of their feeling or their position on any issue of gray. The word that's translated argue especially was a word that had to do with judging the heart of another person. Going beyond judging their outward actions, but it really was a word that had to do with the idea here of do not judge the motives or the heart of another person when it comes to why they feel how they feel about an issue of gray or why they do this or that. Do you remember that well-known verse from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where in Matthew 7, 1, he said, don't judge so that you won't be judged. This is the kind of judgment that he's talking about. The kind of judgment that goes beyond, hey, I I see this person and they're lying, or I see this person and they're a murderer, or I see this person and they're an adulterer and that's wrong. No, that's not the kind of judging he's, he's forbidding there. The kind of judging he's forbidding is the kind that looks at someone and, and here's what they say and how they feel about an issue or, or things that they do that are gray or things that they don't do that are gray and says, well, you know, they're probably not a Christian or they're not a Christian or they're not a real strong Christian or they're not the kind of Christian that God can really use, or God certainly can't use them as greatly as he could in another's life if they felt rightly on that issue. You know who the other person always is, right? He couldn't use them as greatly as he could me. Hughes once more has said, our human tendency is to judge those 
who don't conform to our customs or standards. We're good at that, aren't we? And let's not fool ourselves anymore. Do you know why we're so quick to judge people who don't live up to our standards? Because it makes us feel better about us. Rick Warren wrote at the beginning of his book, The Purpose Driven Lie, it's not about me, but for all of us it is about me. He's right, it shouldn't be about me, but for every one of us we have to fight this tendency that it is about me. And the standard of norm is me. How often have we used this phrase? Well, they're sort of different. Well, what standard are we comparing them to? Me. (laughs) They're different than me. They're sort of weird compared to what? Me, they're weird. All the while, dude is over there saying, well, he's sort of different. He's sort of weird. I'll take it a step further. When it comes to these issues, it's not simply that we shouldn't pass judgment on the basis of them. This is probably an indication that we shouldn't even try to settle these issues among ourselves. And that if discussing these issues leads to us arguing about these issues, that we shouldn't even discuss these issues. Now, if we can be adults about it, and have a spirit of grace about it, then surely we can talk about them. But if it's just going to lead to finger pointing and and hurt feelings and words said in anger, then don't even talk about them. Listen again, don't argue about doubtful issues. So what are doubtful issues? Well, we don't have to guess. Three of them are given to us in the chapter. What's acceptable to eat, what's not. What we should do on the Sabbath day and what we shouldn't. Alcohol, later on in the chapter. Other ones like it that we've talked about and maybe could identify from other passages in the Bible. Let me be more specific. What does doubtful issues mean besides issues of grace? What does it mean? Here's what we're talking about that we shouldn't argue about, break fellowship over, pass judgment about. Opinions. Every idea that we have doesn't come directly from God. You are giving yourself far too much credit if you think so. God has been blamed for the worst ideas over and over again. And we're all guilty at some point, aren't we? Haven't we been the one who sat in a, in a meeting and thought about the color of the church carpet That it wasn't merely a matter of opinion, but that it was spoken to us in our spirit from God that the color of the carpet should be such. It's not an opinion, it's right and wrong. No, blue carpet will not work, green carpet is much better. Opinions. Customs. Traditions. Culture environment, our own personal history. Let's do some more self-evaluation this morning. Can't we all individually acknowledge that the way that we feel on all of these issues of gray is a product of our upbringing, 
our environment, our experience, our history, our personality, our general way of looking at life. Can't, can't we see that about ourselves when it comes to these issues of grace? Not that it's wrong to feel the way that we do about them. I'm not saying that at all. The wrong would occur when we try to make others feel the same way that we do about these issues of grace. These doubtful issues, as the phrase is used in verse 1, are non-essentials. What are non-essentials? None of these issues are deal breakers when it comes to salvation. Not one of them. These are the things we shouldn't argue about. These are the things we shouldn't break fellowship over. I'll say it again. It's so important. I think it's the biggest thrust of this passage. Issues of gray are not more important than unity. And arguing hurts unity. Passing judgment destroys unity. Now I know what some of you have been thinking from week number one in this passage. And I'm talking about issues of grace. Well, does that mean that anybody can feel any way that they want to feel about anything from the Bible? No. Only about issues of gray. Have I not said repeatedly that there are issues that are not gray biblically? They are black or white. They are issues of black and white. This does not eliminate debating or defending or arguing over doctrine. In fact, we should be shamed that as the people of God, we've spent so much time historically arguing over issues of gray and not arguing over more important things like doctrine. It shows you how shallow most of us are. We'll let people teach anything they want to teach about Jesus, about the gospel, about the Bible, and nary a word is said. But you start talking about what TV shows you can watch, and all you know what breaks out. We should debate doctrine. We should defend the faith that has once and for all been delivered for the saints. In some cases, we should even argue for the faith. Who Jesus is is not an issue of gray. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Jesus is the God-man. He was perfect His life is the only means of salvation. His death, His resurrection are literal facts. In addition to that, spiritual facts of great consequence. I'm not saying that they're black and white issues simply because I say so. I'm saying so because the Bible declares it to be so. And for 2,000 years, the church of God has declared them to be so. Who God is is not an issue of gray. What God is like is not an issue of gray. What the Bible is, that it's the Word of God and that it's perfect. 
and that it is the standard of truth by which all truth must be measured. That's not an issue of gray. That's a black and white issue. The gospel, as I've said the previous three weeks, is not a gray issue. It's black and white. The way that we're saved is not a gray issue. We are saved according to the Bible only through what Jesus has done and who Jesus is as we trust in His life and His death and His resurrection. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This is black and white. Nor am I suggesting, nor does this passage suggest, that we do not debate or defend or argue about biblical morality. Maybe you have thought, well, this explains why some within the church think homosexuality is a sin and others do not. No. That's a black and white issue because the Bible has declared that it is a sin. If a professing Christian feels otherwise, they are wrong. And some of you are thinking, well, he's the most arrogant guy in the world. No, I'm not saying they're wrong because I think that what I think counts for nothing. God has declared it to be so. Same with any form of sexual immorality. Promiscuity, adultery are wrong. They are sin. They're, they're not up for personal opinion or or debate regarding their rightness or wrongness. There are many other issues of biblical morality that are clearly defined in Scripture. But when it comes to issues of gray, we shouldn't break fellowship or argue or pass judgment. Robert Meldenius put it this way. In essentials, unity. And if we don't agree on the essentials, then there's no possibility for unity. In essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, liberty. Freedom. Non-essentials. In all things, charity or love. You've heard it before, right? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Issues of gray are not a cause for argument. What this passage continues to teach us is that there are issues of gray. It's not a passage that suggests we ought to make our local churches on the basis of how we feel about these different issues. You know what happens, by the way, if you keep dividing churches over issues of gray? You end up with a church of one. You do it long enough and you end up with a church of one. And that's you. And then there will come a day where you don't even agree with yourself. And I don't know what you do then. This passage is about how do we deal with these issues of gray. And it's not by dividing. 
We deal with them. We deal with them. I, the first Sunday I talked about this, Sid came to me afterwards and he said, I think that more than issues of gray, they're issues of grace. I like that. We should extend grace when it comes to these issues and all of the differing opinions about them. Because that's what we want. We'll learn more about dealing with these issues as we make our way through this passage. And as we make our way through the rest of chapter 14, I've told you already that the real challenge for us is to apply what we're learning. Once more, let me emphasize, as I have each preceding week and even already today, that one thing that is not an issue of gray is the gospel. Jesus is Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter if you agree with that or not. And I say that with as much charity as I can. He's Lord and Savior. He's the only way to be saved. Through faith in what He's doing, you can be forgiven of all of your sins and receive eternal life and be made right with God, receiving the righteousness of Jesus to count for you and to cover you. There is no other way. It's not one of the spokes on the bicycle wheel that all lead to the same place. It's the way. And the only way that you can receive it is through turning from the sins and the sinner that you are to Jesus And placing your faith on Him to provide you with all of these things. If you have not done so. I would encourage you strongly to do so. And if you feel something holding you back. Then at the very least. I would suggest that you pray that God would change your heart and so convince your mind that nothing would keep you from placing your faith on Jesus for salvation. For all the rest of us that have believed and are believing on Jesus to save us, it's the same old message for us. Keep looking back to what Jesus has done. Think about it. Dwell on it. It will increase your love for God. And from that, you will begin to live for God because you want to not because you have to. And all the while, keep turning from your sin and trusting on Him to save you. And He will. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes? During our invitation today, if there's something that you want to come and pray about, something that you want to come and talk with me about, That would be wonderful. If you ever want to talk with me, not during this time, but some other time, please let me know. I'd love to talk with you. If you have questions about the gospel or about whether you're saved or not, or if you know that you're not and want to learn more about it, uh, please talk with me or someone else. 
there's a decision that the Lord has been leading you to make. I don't have to identify it. You know what it is. And you feel the need to make it publicly. This is a time to do that. Or if you just want to spend time silently with God where you are and making a commitment or a recommitment to Him there, this is what this time is for as well. And over the past few weeks, one of the things that we've been using this time for is for members of our church to come forward and sign our church's new covenant, our covenant, covenant that we've agreed on and voted on. And by doing so, to recommit yourself to membership like this. And if you've read it, there's nothing legalistic about it, nothing too difficult about it. It's just basic Christianity that we're covering uh, and, and committing and covenanting with each other to strive to do and to help each other to do so. You can use this time to do that. Many already have. If you want to do it after the service, that'd be great too. I ask you to prayerfully consider that, church members. I don't want you to feel pressured to do that. I want you to do it in your time and as you're convinced that it's the right thing to do.